What is this LIHTC thing? LIHTC means low income housing tax credits. These are issued every year by state and local agencies in about 9 billion annually, but they are separated by each state and by local agency. And each state and local agency gets a certain amount of that budget that's created annually. So it depends on where you're located. And they're used in the acquisition, the rehab, the new construction of rental housing targeted for lower income individuals with lower income restrictions, obviously. They're pretty similar to Section 8. That's why a lot of Section 8 properties have LIHTC as well. So it's good to check to see if it has Lura on it, a land use restriction agreement on it to see what are the income limits, what are the restrictions that it has on it before you acquire it. Whenever it's a Section 8 property, they might be re-syndicated and converted into a limited partnership. And that's what will help become make the property converted into a LIHTC property. REACT means real estate assessment center. It's a pretest. And it's essentially HUD's way of understanding what's the cumulative total score of separate items on an inspection list. And it's based on the community's site, building exteriors, the building systems, common areas, the units, uh, health and safety. And so what they do is they subtract and add based on these deficiencies, and then they identify them in a report that is provided as like the overall health report card of the property. So if it comes back with a low REACT score, they're going to have to go through another REACT. If you want to see the current REACT score of a property, the best thing to do is to just type in into Google multifamily housing assistance payments database. And the database is a huge list. It lists every single property in the United States. It tells you what's the property name, the address, and it will give you the most recent REACT score because it's public knowledge. Okay, welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, I got a Christmas present for everybody that's listening today. We have the OG, Andrea Garcia, back on the podcast today. And she has decided to put together a document and answer so many questions about all the terminology that she wished she would have learned way earlier in her career. So by you listening to the podcast today, you're probably getting a shortcut of over five, six, seven years of experience all in one hour. So Andrea, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. What's going on with you? Oh my God. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. You always hype me up way more than I th feel like I deserve. But you know, I definitely feel like if I had a mentor in this process of being in affordable housing from like, I think it's almost six years ago, I started in just multifamily affordable housing. I wish I would have learned all these terms I wish somebody would have been like holding my hand and walking me through um, so many steps, like a pro forma, which I did have maybe two people who were kind enough to walk me through that process. So by you doing this service to people, this is a service. This podcast is providing people with knowledge for free that they usually would pay 40000 50000 what whatever that would cost in tuition at any other real estate school. So this is amazing what you're doing. Oh, thanks, Andrea. And you know, I can, you could not, I could not have done this without you. And I, I have to give you another shout out because Andrea gave, gave me a chance when I was purely new. And for everybody that doesn't know this, I mean, I started this podcast about affordable housing before I had any affordable housing rentals and talk about imposter syndrome. But Andrea was so kind and so nice. And she gave me the chance and not only did she let me trip over myself asking some questions that I never even knew how to ask, but then she came back on and continued giving me mentorship and advice. And 
Andre, I'm just so grateful for you to have you in my life as a friend. Um, thank you so much for coming on here. And I, I just can't thank you enough on behalf of the audience. I'm grateful for you too, honestly. I really don't <laughs> like I've had that the same thing too, the imposter syndrome where you're thinking like, where where does this come from? I don't feel like I have enough experience or knowledge um in this, but you know, now that I think about it, after six years of being in this space, I am a general partner in 1,200 plus units. Uh, last year was 1,700 units, but we sold about 500 of those. So um, just going through that, I just realized, oh my God, I'm a general partner in huge multifamily deals. Because I was able to put in the sweat equity, I was able to learn one thing at a time, ask questions not be embarrassed to ask stupid questions and just keep Googling and YouTubing and people like you, you know, like what does affordable housing mean? What does tax, light tech tax credit mean? And going through those classes with Novogratic, like you just have to keep in this field and stay focused if you really do want to maximize the most out of your time, because I will not ever retract the statement Affordable housing investing in, in multifamily is the most lucrative place you can be in multifamily because you not only get money from the tenants, you get money from the government, the tax credits it's applied to. There's just so many benefits to it. And you're improving the lives of these tenants. You're making them live in, you're, you're allowing them the opportunity to live in these uh, potentially class A units for somebody that doesn't even make that much money. And that's a that's like the beauty of it that you can develop these properties that were dilapidated, make them class A, make them beautiful, amazing project amenities, and make these low income families just grateful to the fact that they can live there and only pay maximum thirty percent of what they make every month. Isn't that amazing? That is the most amazing part about this. And when we share and debunk some of those myths together, Andrea. This is how we really truly make differences in people's lives. We are able, and I think maybe I, I got to find this article. I read that somewhere along the way that one of the biggest single determinants of whether or not someone is going to be successful or what their livelihood might look like is almost like their zip code that they're born in. So when we are the ones that are able to come into great neighborhoods and put in beautiful homes that we live in ourselves or our parents or our kids that is something that we can be super super proud of and feel super super fulfilled and this is why i i do this because i love what i'm doing right now i probably worked more hours than ever in my life andrea but it does not feel like work because i'm just hanging out with people like you this is technically work but i'm just hanging out with you this is the yeah. cool part you know what those gray hairs are gonna pay off i know they <laughs> 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 I feel like I'm developing some already, but it's okay. You know, I, I got some. It keeps too. us it's fulfilled. <laughs> but yeah, one thing I wanted to dive into in this process is that um, when I first started working at the company I work for, uh, they are a huge developer in affordable housing, multifamily, and tax credit properties. So when I came in there, I was like a deer in headlights. I was like, "What is going on here?" Because a lot of the terminology that was spouted in our first like team gathering, team get together, we're like, okay, let's re let's recapitalize on this and figure out where the market at rents are at. Have we done a market markup to market on this? What is the lease ups uh, that we're expecting? Uh, maybe we can convert this to a tax credit play or maybe a bond play, but I don't know what where's the rents coming. You know, like all these terms that were spouted out at me. I'm like, what? So uh, over the years, I feel like I've 
I started creating this uh, kind of like a how-to in multifamily affordable housing, but I extracted some of those terms and then just put them in a document for you guys. So it's coming up and uh, I just wanted to give you like a quick overview of what that could mean. So I broke it down into a couple of processes. For terminology and affordable housing, I thought about, okay, there's so many terms to think about, but what are the most important key terms is you have to think about the process of it, right? When you're, I broke it down in terms of terms you will hear when you're buying a multifamily affordable housing property, when you're going through the due diligence phase, essentially when you're about to close on the deal and acquire it, when you're going through the increasing the rent after you've acquired it, developing the property, stabilizing the asset, refinancing, maintaining the asset, and then finally selling off the asset. So there's a lot of terms used when you're going through these processes. So I wanted to break it down in a shorter way so that you guys can understand what are the most important terms you could possibly hear. And I am so excited for this because this <laughs> is a college class in one hour, a little boot camp style. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you some of these questions about let's start with buying a property, Andrea. So let's start with these three terms that I hear so often. And these were these made my head spin when I first started. And that's a TTM or trailing 12 month, the rent row and the OM, the offer memorandum. Because I, I want to ask those three together because sometimes you hear about that stuff in the due diligence phase. So let's go through those three terms first, the TTM, the rent row and the OM. What are they and why are they important? So those three documents you just mentioned, the T12, the rent roll and the offering memorandum, those are items that you're going to request from the broker, from the commercial multifamily broker when you are acquiring, potentially acquiring the asset. So those items will help you go through your underwriting phase and create what's called a pro forma. And the T12 is essentially like a profit and loss statement stipulating the month to month financials. And it will give you the last 12 months. Sometimes if you don't receive the 12 months, you might have to create it yourself by um, averaging out the last trailing three months. The rent roll, it will include, it's basically a spreadsheet. It's best to request these documents in Excel as well. And they're going to contain really detailed information on each of all the units. They're going to contain uh, what's in the apartment community, like the tenant names, the unit numbers, unit types, square footages, um, market rents, the actual effective rent, security deposit amounts, and then there's uh, move in and move out dates as well. And then the OM, what that's going to provide you with, it's a summary essentially that the broker made for an on-market deal. And that's what they use to advertise the actual deal. So this is their pro forma. Just to make it a quick overview, the offering memorandum is essentially a pro forma from the broker and an advertisement of what they their team anticipates it could bring in in terms of returns for your team. So it's a presentation. Once again, what you're going to request from that broker is a trailing 12 rent roll offering memorandum just to get your initial underwriting started and some back and forth going with the broker. Oh, this is going to be a good question, Andre. How do you weigh what's more important? Like from what you see in the OM from a broker? Because typically I've heard that obviously if a broker is trying to sell the property, they're going to try to put the best of the best scenarios, right? Possibly. Non-conservative is what non we call them. <laughs> <laughs> Non-conservative. I love that. How do you... And I know we've done a podcast about underwriting, but as a general overview, what should people watch out for? Because you just mentioned, hey, sometimes OMs, they're not conservative. So how should people look at these items when they get them? And what type of weight should they really be putting on to? 
the now data you have me thinking. Whenever I, I get an OM, the first thing I usually look at is the unit mix because it's a quick down and dirty of what the unit mix is. Uh, I like seeing the market comparables. What are the sales comparables and what are the rent comparables so that you can use that and factor that into your pro forma rents. You will usually also see um, some quick analysis of what renovations have taken place, like the CapEx or any... Um, any overall injection into the capital expenditures of that building along with the demographics of the market. So I usually look at it. I don't, when I look at an offering memorandum, I don't focus on the financials because most of it is not conservative and you need to be very conservative in your underwriting. I mostly just look at that unit mix, market and analytics, demographics, um, and also anything that can tell me what's been injected into renovations. I love that. That was a pro tip. I hope everybody rewinds that and figures out what you should be paying attention to. Not that you should ignore everything, everything else, I mean, but just take everything with a grain of salt uh, when you're doing your due diligence. Exactly. So. I mean, I run my own comps. I, I have to call the comps yes. and pretend like I'm the person renting because I like the comps that the broker provides me with in the OM, but I like to run my own comparables. And it's also very helpful to see the sales comparables as well. So it does have useful information in there, but I will I will take what their analysis is and their pro forma with a grain of salt. Yes. And I learned about secret, I think they call it secret shopper or secret shopping, something along those lines. But that's what you have to do. If you want to verify, last time I got a call with a property that had a HAP contract, I just called the market and I said, Hey, how many two bedrooms do you have? What's in higher demand? How many vacancies do you have? And those are all the questions that you want to ask so that you can truly understand the market that you're looking at a property because you don't really want to be wrong on this because a lot of money is riding on these deals. Um, speaking yeah. of which, speaking of HAP contracts, what are HAP contracts, Andrea? They're essentially housing assistance payments that the property is receiving. So I wanted to break this down to somebody that will understand what's the difference between a voucher-based program and a project-based subsidy. So, and you'll see this whenever you're going to engage a rent comparability study or try to figure out, okay, is this property a hundred percent HAP contract on it, or do they accept housing choice vouchers by the tenant? So just to answer your question, HAP contract is usually tied to a project-based housing assistance uh, property, and they have a HAP contract, which usually lasts about 20 years. Uh, and these are agreements between the public housing authority and the owner of the property to define the number of units eligible for the Section 8 rental subsidies. So this enables your tenants essentially to pay less for their rent in certain situations for that specific building. And then for a housing choice voucher, what that is essentially, it's a program formerly called Section 8. It's basically a form of uh, subsidized affordable housing, which families who qualify usually having an income of 50% or less from the AMI, the area median income. Uh, and that may be provided by the government um, to fund and pay the portion in their rent. And so they take that voucher with them and they go to the project and they say, oh, here, this is what's going to cover my rent at this particular property. So that goes with the tenant. It doesn't stay with the property. Yes. And I love that, how you explained the last piece. What I've been thinking about is the housing choice voucher, formerly known as Section 8 voucher, 
it goes with the tenant whenever they move. The project-based voucher stays with the unit. So when, like, let's say it was just someone like me where I went to college, got a good job, and I said, hey, you know what? I'm ready to move out of this place. I moved out, but then the next person moving in gets to continue enjoying that subsidy because it's allocated unit. Is that a good way to break it down? Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, okay. It's, it's very important to understand those differences because whenever you are going to receive an OM offering memorandum from a broker and you're and it says 95% of the units have a HAP contract or they're project-based, that will tell you that you do have certain income limits, income restrictions that are on most of the units. So your funding mostly will come from that plus the government. Interesting. And, and maybe this is where I, sometimes I get a little confused, Andrea. Maybe you can clear this up for me. When a building has a HAP contract, let's just say for half the units, does that mean it's on a HAP contract or do you typically your public housing authorities allocate vouchers like, hey, for every 200 units, we'll give you 40 vouchers or something like that? Is that typically under a HAP contract or can they just say, hey, they heard of vouchers? I just want to make sure I understand the the terminology correctly. <laughs> yeah. So if a project, meaning the property, is going to have 50% is covered with the project-based HAP contract, that means that for those 50% of the units, they need to have tenants that are making like a maximum of 50% of the area median income. So they, these units have income restrictions and you can't have somebody that's like a high income earner living in those units because they, those units will be provided with funding from the government and they do have to be maintained as they're a business. So every year you're property management company has to request what's called an OCAF operating cost adjustment factor to increase those rents. And then for the remaining 50% of those units, those are usually market rate units and your property manager has to charge market rents for that comparable property. So it's treated differently in terms of how you can increase rent and who qualifies to live in those units. That's what a project-based uh, voucher is. Project-based a uh, contract is how contract is for the property. But that's different than a project-based voucher. Yes, it's different from okay. the voucher. The voucher goes with the tenant. So if the, okay. if the tenant leaves that unit, let's say they can move in into pretty much any property that will allow that voucher. So if they move into that unit, then they take it with them and then they don't have to pay more than like 30% of their income. So they take mm. it with them. Mm, that's a great point. And I love how you mentioned the property manager and the compliance task because I do want folks to recognize that when when you're dealing with properties with a HAP contract, you do have to maintain compliance, which means you have to document how much are these folks making, what their jobs are. Sometimes when they switch jobs from multiple jobs, you have to keep on top of those records because sometimes uh, HUD could withhold payments um, if you don't meet those compliance requirements. So don't think it's just all fun and games, you still have to do work to earn the rent here in this situation. Exactly. Those uh, tenants are screened pretty much every month. <laughs> yeah. Every month they have to submit uh, their pay stubs. Um, and so in some cases, they allow it quarterly. But yeah, they do have to qualify and re-qualify consistently in order for them to, for their income and their rent, mm -hmm. their rent to be calculated. Specifically, it's for how much their rent will cover that project. Got it. Understand. And just for folks like personally, Alvin, who's another co-host on the podcast, 
we don't look for properties with HAP contracts that are under 100 units because with that amount of compliance, it's very hard to justify a full property manager resource on site unless you have enough units to justify that additional headcount cost. So just something that we have run into that I want to share with the audience that's a little bit more real life. Um, but it doesn't mean that, hey, a, a project with lower unit count can't work. Just be prepared uh, for the extra work if you're going to take on that that challenge. Exactly. I feel like what you could anticipate in that scenario, because a lot of people can't acquire more than 100 units. So if you're going to start off with a, a project-based voucher property that has less than 100 units, I highly recommend that you hire a property manager that is solely focused on tax credit and Section 8 uh, compliance focus, you know, so that they are very experienced and aware of what they're going to charge um, and how they're going to qualify tenants. And then they might charge you a little bit more in terms of a management fee, but it's worth it because you do not want to be out of compliance. No, because when you're out of compliance, they're going to withhold the rents. And you, that's a position you don't you do not want to be in. So we just talked a lot about HAP, uh, Section 8 vouchers, project-based housing assistance. What what is this LIHTC thing? People just say it so smoothly uh, off their tongue. But what is what are the low-income housing tax credit projects and how do people implement that strategy, Andrea? So with uh, LIHTC, that essentially means low-income housing tax credits. And these are issued every year by state and local agencies in about $9 billion annually, but they are separated by each state and by local agency. And each state and local agency gets a certain amount of that budget that's created annually. So it depends on where you're located, but that's the public housing um, agency that you usually apply for. And they're used in the acquisition, the rehab, the new construction of rental housing targeted for lower income individuals with lower income restrictions, obviously. So most of the uh, LIHTC income restrictions, they're pretty similar to Section 8. Uh, so they're very si similar to Section 8. That's why a lot of Section 8 properties have light are LIHTC as well. So it's good to check to see if it has a LURA on it, a land use restriction agreement on it to see what are the income limits, what are the um, restrictions that it has on it before you acquire it. And usually, Whenever it's a Section 8 property, uh, they might be resyndicated and converted into a limited partnership. And that's what will help uh, become make the property convert into a LIHTC property. So, okay, big words. Tax credit big property. words there, Andrea. <laughs> big words. Let's, let's, let's break that down a little bit. Resyndicated. Well, yes. let, maybe let's, let's simplify it from a question of if an investor wants to take advantage of the low income housing tax credit. Like, why would they take on a project? And what's the pros and cons of doing a LIHTC project? Ooh, there's so many benefits to making a property, a tax credit property. I'll give you the benefits of it first. Let's start with the good news first. So the good news about converting a property to become LIHTC, which receives low-income housing tax credits, is that you have more money from the government in order to help with your rehab. So it helps the developer with their rehab budget. You're able to provide your investors with tax credits, which they can use to depreciate on their uh, taxes. You're able to um, make sure that it follows LIHTC income restriction regulations, meaning that you are guaranteed to keep 
usually Section 8 tenants in those units, and it has stricter compliance in terms of upkeep and health and safety. So essentially, you're getting a property that's going to become more elevated. And also, you have benefits to the investor, to the developer, you're able to get more money in order to rehab your project because it's used for public good. So you're able to renovate the project for a little bit more money. And that way it helps you guys improve it to what's maybe a class A building. You know, I would say the only drawbacks about converting a property to a tax credit property is that what's required by those local and government agencies and by lenders are usually a lot longer inter like the list of compliance is long <laughs> you usually would have to have what are called qapp deliverables uh qualified application deliverables uh expenses are tracked a lot more thoroughly so if you have a development team follow uh traveling to the project for its development into litech you have to keep track of track of those uh, travel expenses. You have to keep track of pretty much every expense when it comes to converting a project into a light tech project. And it's usually uh, re-syndicated, meaning it's restructured in debt and uh, operated by maybe a limited partner. And it, it's structured in that way um, so that that project is able to get a tax exemption. So there's so many benefits to it. Um, wow. also there it's, I would say the biggest benefit of converting it. I'm sorry, I have to keep rehashing this, but the biggest benefit for sure of an, any tax credit property conversion is the tax exemption you're going to get, especially if you partner up with a nonprofit and create, and it helps make that property into a nonprofit conversion. So you're able to get a tax exemption on it. So there, there's just so many benefits to it. Yeah. And the, the tax exemption just for everyone to be super clear, that's a property tax exemption. And yes. a lot of times when you're in this multifamily value add space and you're buying a property, you're increasing value, chances are your property tax is going to go up. So a deal that might not be a deal for a typical multifamily value add investor might be a deal for a nonprofit. It might be a deal for a affordable housing investor like yourselves that are listening to this podcast right now. So this is why it's really important to pay attention to this. Uh, maybe one more question on the LIHTC stuff, Andrea. In terms of the benefits, I've heard of people using these tax credits. They get granted them and they sell them off to fund the renovation. Can you help explain like what, what does that even mean? Like, for people that have never heard of those before, they're like, hey, you get some tax credits and you sell it off and then use that to fund deal. Like, what, what does that even mean? Honestly, I will tell you, I'm not the most qualified person to answer that question because my financing team usually helps me with that. Ah. I help structure the deal when it comes to that. But whenever you're selling the tax credits, usually what happens is that many, those tax credits are competitive. Like a lot of people want to have those tax credits and they're, they're only awarded to certain developers who present a great business plan. So that's why the people that originally get awarded those tax credits is because their business plan is solid. They have great lenders. They have a good development plan. So whenever they they're able to sell those tax credits off to another developer, they want them because they are um, essentially capitalized differently and they're able to get the investors are able to get a higher uh, tax credit 
on their uh, on their tax returns as well. But there's there's just so many benefits to it. I honestly recommend your audience if they want to learn more about tax credits that they check out Novo Gradic. Novo Gradic is a really great educator. They're basically CPAs and tax preparers for light tech properties, and they have a great educational program about what is tax credits, how people qualify. Uh, how you can sell them, how it works. Like there's so many benefits to learning it, but if they want to get more information, I highly recommend that. I love that. So guys, make sure you you definitely pay attention to looking at LIHTC credits because it's, it's a very common strategy, but just because it's common does not mean it's not competitive. And I, I view that as one of the sort of cons almost under it because it's so competitive. And if you don't present a great plan and you don't get awarded tax credits, then all of a sudden you might be left scrambling for figuring out how you're going to acquire property or rehab a property. So just be very, very careful about that. Yes. Yeah, all right. Next term, pilot, payment in lieu of taxes. <laughs> yeah. Anytime, <laughs> we're about, anytime we're about to acquire a property, we like to ask if the property has a pilot on it because essentially what that helps us understand is that instead of paying the taxes based on an assessed value and tax rate, which is what we just discussed, that more than likely you're gonna get, you're gonna pay what the sale amount is or up to 80% of that. What this does is that it's typically a calculation based on the percentage of income. So under these pilot programs, municipalities are authorized to grant developers exceptions from the traditional taxes that they would normally pay for a set period of time to encourage them to make improvements to the property or to locate a project in a distressed or not so great area. So instead of paying the taxes, uh, the property owners make an annual pilot payment to the municipality and the pilot payment can be less than traditional taxes. So that's, that's a quick overview of what a pilot is. And we want to know how that's going to if it is in place at the moment, because not only do these exemptions save a developer in real estate taxes, but they can provide an increase in the fair market value of the property as a result of a higher NOI, net operating income. That's right. When you save property taxes, it's all bottom line dollar saving, dollar for dollar. So that can increase your NOI tremendously, which leads into the pro forma. Now, we mentioned the pro forma a little bit earlier. Yep. You know, I know what a pro forma is. But what what why do people need to make one, Andrea? You're gonna hear like, hey, did you do a pro forma for this uh, for this apartment already? And that's essentially what's completed in your underwriting process. And it's it's basically a project a projected budget of a multifamily complex within the line items itemized for the income and for the expenses broken down year by year for the holding period of the asset. Whenever you're asked to provide a pro forma. That's essentially your underwriter's responsibility and your responsibility, whatever position you have to understand how the numbers are working for that asset. That's right. And use, and again, the pro forma is just a spreadsheet with the, uh, the assumptions and the research that you put into the process. If you looked at any of our past episodes that we've done with Andrea, we talk about how do you how do you do your research? How do you do secret shopper? How do you actually do the market research based on the market study? All that stuff, those are very, very valuable inputs that you need to take into consideration to develop a good pro forma and create multiple versions of the pro forma because you want to go through different scenarios of best, worst case scenario, et cetera. Um, yes, absolutely. 
But um, I did break down the terminology into these different phases. So now we just completed what's, you know, the acquisition phase. When you're going into the due diligence phase, I'm wondering if we've done a podcast on this because I was looking at my due diligence list and I'm like, oh my God, there's so many terms. I, I should just spell out what we normally ask for. But if you want, we can do a separate due diligence podcast on this. But when you're going through that phase, once the LOI is essentially signed, you're awarded the deal, you're going to go through what's called the due diligence phase with your team. And your team has to ask for so many documentation, pieces of documents, along with inspection reports. But especially in affordable housing, there's other terms that you're going to ask for besides the normal DD questions, you know, besides the financials, the trailing 12, you're usually going to ask for uh, a REACT score, uh, MOR score, any kind of EHS certification, regulatory agreements, use agreements, which include what we said, land use restriction agreements, rent schedules, utility allowance schedules, uh, preservation contracts, and any excess light tech documentation. And I can explain Ooh. what all these are. <laughs> Let, let's do that. Because if we run out of time, we'll stop at the end of this phase under there and we'll pick it up next time on closing the deal and increasing the rents. Because I think this is all the terminology you just threw out right now. Man, I think people, if they're thinking about buying it, helping them understand their immediate next step, which is the due diligence, that's going to make them feel a little bit more at ease. So I heard MOR score, React score. Let's start with those two because I, I don't know how we keep scores, but tell me a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, good? You know, anytime you're going to the... Okay, I'm going to give people a tip. If you want to see the current React score of a property, the best thing to do is to go just type in uh, into Google multifamily housing assistance payments database. And the database is a huge list. It lists every single property in the United States. It tells you what's the property name, the address, and it will give you the React score, the most recent React score, because it's public knowledge. You are able to see, okay, I want to buy xyz apartments in this uh demographic in this area let me see what the current react score could be and if it's a low react score that's an issue if it's uh, if it's, it's usually like going to school if a react score is over 70 percent, that's passing that's good but if it's under 70 that's no bueno <laughs> i'll just give that as a quick tip yikes but it's essentially uh, it's hud's way um react means real estate assessment center and it's essentially hud's way of understanding what's the cumulative total score of separate uh items on an inspection list and it's based on the community's site uh, building exteriors the building systems common areas the units uh, health and safety and so what they do is they subtract and add based on these deficiencies and then they identify them in a report that is provided as like the overall health report card of the property so if it comes back with a low react score uh you're they're gonna have to go through another react and people Is, hire pre-react um, companies to come in and give them um, a pre-assessment before the react inspection is completed they pay good money for these pre-react companies to come in interesting and th is that almost similar i'm trying to draw an analogy to single family homes because sometimes a 
like a fix and flipper for a single family home might pay for a housing inspector to come in and do an inspection before they even listen on the market. So they fix all these issues so they avoid as many credit. Is that why someone would do a pre-react uh, yes. inspection? Okay. Yeah. So the pre-react is basically your, your uh, manager's way or your owner's way of making sure that they're going to pass the react inspection. It's the pre-qualification uh, to make sure you, it's a test. It's a pre-test. It, I wouldn't say, yeah, it, it's a pre-test. <laughs> well, what happens when you fail the React score below 70? Does that mean they lose their subsidies or their contracts? What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, it, it puts their subsidy at risk because mm. it, it's basically like saying, oh, you're running a slum. This is a slumlord mm. who's running the property. I don't want to give government money to somebody who has a building with a super low react score but that's that makes me concerned for the tenant safety so it's it's the government's way to make sure that you are a good landlord that you're providing quality housing and the react score is a great indicator of that but also the mor score will tell you that too and the mor score is the management occupancy report it usually does include that REAC as well, but it includes everything from repairs after your last REAC inspection to your admissions policies. Most importantly, the household files that prove the eligibility of your residence. So that's how they both tie in. I see. And is the MOR score and REAC score given annually? Does that happen annually, biannually? What does that look like? The react score is done every couple of years. It's okay. a surprise. It's like a surprise section, oh. you know, uh, but it's a surprise. And they will tell you about maybe two weeks in advance, maybe a week in advance. So you, you're, you make, you have to make sure that your property manager is on the lookout for that notice. If you are going to get a react, sometimes it could be a, every year. If it's, if your property had a low react score, but it could be every, maybe three years, every two years, it just depends on, uh, the health of the current building. Got it. And that's really helpful. And whenever the the government comes in and does and does a react inspection, is it typically one person or do they bring in multiple people like sub trades? Like, hey, someone's looking at the HVAC, someone's looking at the plumbing. Just curious as to how what what's a knowledge or specific trade knowledge from these inspectors that might be rating you on a react score they usually have a checklist whenever these okay. react inspectors come by the property they have a checklist of anything regarding health and safety building systems common areas um entryways even the fire uh fire hazard extinguisher they have to check if those are active if they're good if they're not it it could completely ruin somebody's react score so it's definitely like you're going to go through a pop quiz <laughs> with your you know, math calculus teacher. That's how it feels whenever you're going to go through that. It could be one person doing it. I don't think I've heard of more than one person completing that inspection, honestly, but I could be wrong. You know, it could have changed. I'm not in charge of this. Usually our property manager mm. has to notify us as the ownership to make sure that, okay, we're going to go through this react inspection and this is what we're anticipating. This is the money we allocated in our OPEX and our operating expenses to cover for a pre-REAC because we need it. So they have to let us know when they're going to incur an expense in order to make sure that we're going to pass a test, right? So yes. When I find out. <laughs> well, I love I love this. And the analogy I'll use is I, I know cousins that have owned restaurants and they tell me the food inspector from the health department comes into restaurants all the time. 
on, on an ounce. And I wow. think sometimes you actually do need this because you want to make sure the food that people are eating are being handled in a safe way and things are being kept at temperatures and you are cleaning and keeping the restaurant in tip-top shape so that people don't get sick eating your food. I kind of view this as almost a similar thing where you say it was like a pop quiz. That makes me feel better actually about the React score because you can't, you need to be on top of your game to get a good score. Otherwise, it can you can kind of tell like whether or not someone's going to be a slumlord because if the React score is low, then they're not being consistent with how they're managing their property. So right, yeah. And then that. along with that, like I said, in the due diligence phase, you're going to ask for the React score, the MOR score, the EHS certification, which is exigent health and safety of a property. The property owners should have this form to certify. Uh, any correction of a life-threatening issue. So they may or may not have this recently, but you definitely should ask uh, if it is a Section 8 property for regulatory agreements that are in place or any use agreements. And the reg agreement, we call them reg agreements. Uh, they're HUD regulatory agreements that essentially are between the project borrower and uh, HUD with respect to the development as the same way it may be supplemented and amended or modified from time to time. So you're going to see the reg agreement usually tied to a section eight property. And then if it's a tax credit property, you're definitely going to see Allura land use restriction agreement, which will give you the maximum and minimum of what you could charge in terms of um, income restriction and, and also in rent. So these agreements uh, state that the limits and the set period in which you could charge those rents and the main benefit of making a land use restriction agreement is that you can you'll you'll basically gain access to low income housing tax credit properties and there's like i said there's so many benefits to that um but that's definitely that something you should read in the due diligence phase so i'm assuming a a lira agreement is a fixed amount of time that the property or development has to stay affordable. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yes. Um, like I said, if you want more information about what is a light tech property, there's, believe me, I took hours and hours of classes. <laughs> on this. There's so many intricacies when it comes to a light tech property, but the most basic way to describe it is that you're going to be issued an 8609. It's basically a certificate that states this property is a tax credit property. And then it's going to be have a PIS placed in service date of when it's placed in service. And then sometimes the credits, you can start receiving those credits maybe up to a year after we've placed it in service. So, and there's usually a 15 year compliance period that you have to issue, like it's issued within a like 15 years, you do have to collect those tax credits. Otherwise they're gone. It's kind of like use it or lose it. After that 15-year compliance period, you could have an additional, I think it's 15 years of another period, but um, you should check with the land use restriction agreement to see what is the compliance period and what is the um, extra period that you're allowed in order to receive those tax credits. It's usually Understand. five years. Understand. And you mentioned a, the reg agreements or regulatory agreements. Are, is that simply for like a HAP contract or what is a what is the difference I guess what is a reg assessment? What does a reg agreement typically contain? A reg agreement? I actually have to Google this because, like, I try to block it out of my mind. <laughs> reg agreements are pretty. I mean, they they're pretty long, and they will tell you like the project's address, the 
you know, the project's address, who's the borrower, mm. um, what's what are the restrictions in terms of development for this project? And also it'll basically state all the definitions that are within there. But uh, I see. They go okay. with they usually go with a section eight building. But the Luros, okay. you need if it's a tax credit property and it tells you um in the OM offering memorandum that this property is like 95% section eight, but then the rest is like 40% AMI slash 50%, you know, AMI, then that'll tell you, okay, it might be a, a, a tax credit property. So where's the Lura? So th those are documentation that you should get in the due diligence phase. Got it. That's a good hot tip right there. Um, yes, we just did a little mini class on Litech. Oh, I know there's just so many so intricacies good. to it that I, I wish I, that's a whole other podcast, you know? <laughs> I, I looked up Novogratz. Uh, I think they had some upcoming conferences, but they were charging like a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars just for like a one day class. So you guys are getting a tremendous amount of value listening to this. So make sure you're following Andrea on Instagram at Andrea Garcia REI. Make sure you do that. Um, all right, let's keep on going. Uh, rent schedule. What? Wh why do you need a rent schedule during the due diligence space? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So any affordable housing project based. Uh, property usually has a rent schedule tied to it and it's a schedule it it tells you it's a written agreement for the properties showing the name of each tenant for each tenant and the space occupied and it will basically tell you this is how much you have to charge for this unit based on either based on the market comparables or based on the operating cost adjustment factor, the increase in rents. But it's an agreement between you and the government that this is what you will charge for that unit type. That's plain and simple. This is the rent schedule. Love it. All right. Well, next up with the rent schedule, you have the utility <laughs> allowance schedule. What yes. Do all properties have a utility allowance schedule when it comes to affordable housing? Maybe we'll start there. They might not. You know, if, if there's not... A utility allowance then what that means is that the landlord pays for all the utilities but the utility allowance schedule is usually attached to the rent schedule you will see it on the rent schedule it will tell you like a check mark whenever an item is checked on a rent schedule it will say that those items are covered by the landlord so it'll check them off and it'll say okay we covered gas utilities or um, water sewer trash but if they're not checked off it means that the landlord does not cover those and then that will basically tell you the utility allowance it's intended to enable participating families to pay the typical costs for utilities and similar services paid um, either by energy conserving households and occupying units of similar size and type in that locality so whenever somebody asks you for the ua or the utility allowance it's usually in the rent schedule oh this is going to be a good question how I mean, if you have to pay for utilities like water and electricity, that sounds almost scary for for a landlord. Because what if someone just not report a leak? What if someone gets blasting the air conditioner? Have you come across any rules of thumbs, or how do you get around that that fear? I guess because that's really the biggest fear. It's like, hey, what, if I'm paying for allowance utilities, could I really bleed a lot of money through it? How do you underwrite for those scenarios, Andrea? Well, it's good to understand. To work with a good property manager to anticipate what could be the rubs, the utility chargebacks on a particular asset, but it's good to look at historicals and see, okay, this is how much 
we are charging in terms of utilities and this is how much we're collecting in terms of rubs so the rubs will be something you look at the rubs uh utility chargebacks that's up in the income section of your analysis and then the expenses the utilities that you are paying as a landlord will be in the expenses section so it's good to work with a property manager to give you an estimate of what that area's usual utilities would would be charged and it will also give you a good indication on the rent schedule like okay this is how much we cover and make sure it aligns with the trailing 12 financials so uh, sometimes what's on the utility um allowance schedule or the rent schedule some of those items it may be missing on the trailing 12 or maybe added somewhere else as a line item so it's good to just be able to look out for that and work with somebody who can give you give you a double set eyes and ears on the underwriting yeah and that's why you got to work with a master underwriter like andrea right here <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> um we have maybe two more terminology for the buying phase what a preservation renewal contract i've heard that before what does that yes. what does that mean so just to break it down clear and simple i know the i wrote these terms out but preservation renewal contract is a pre-existing half contract that's in place that has a remaining few years left on the contract which will be tackled onto your new HAP contract housing assistance payments and if your company is going through what's called a markup to market or a renovation so if you have only nine years left on your current HAP contract and you're renovating the project making it more uh beautiful or affordable or marking up the rents then those nine years will be tackled onto your new 20-year contract. So it'll be nine plus 20. That's essentially, your, it's an addition to your current of, of years of how many years you have a half contract in place. Got it. So if you're buying a property with existing contract and you were deciding to keep it a half property to enjoy the subsidies, you have to make sure you're keeping that contract. I mean, essentially the benefit is you're extending contract and you're enjoying that subsidy for longer because you are meeting... Right. Those requirements okay that's that's exactly. helpful all right L bringing last this one. down as simple as possible I as i it. could <laughs> and also i put in the due diligence phase if you are purchasing a property that has uh light tech restrictions on it if it is a light tech property there is documentation that you could request which would include that 8609s that certification of when it was placed in service the luras land use restriction agreements compliance monitoring documents 8703s for the last year to make sure it's in compliance the owner's annual certification any outstanding 8823s which is any outstanding violations um litec applications previously submitted the 42M letter, maximum income limits, along with any kind of a tax credit recapture analysis and any limited partnership agreements, such as operating agreements. So I'm telling you, LIHTC understanding and deep knowledge is very, it, it's specialized. It's educated by many people, but I'm just giving you the overview of what it could include. Well, it also sounds like it could be an advantage almost because you're getting so much documentation and because there's so much compliance required you're going to have a little bit more confidence in sort of all of the due diligence documents that you're going to receive w would you agree with that andrea what do you think yeah or is that just so overwhelming <laughs> there's so many benefits to it i mean i know it sounds overwhelming just for somebody listening to what all this includes but i want people to be aware that there are 
terms you're going to hear instead of Googling it, it's good to work with somebody who has that previous experience of purchasing an affordable housing property or a light tech property, because you're not in it alone. You can do it with other people who are more experienced and can give you like a quick summary of what these terms mean. Well, Andrea, this has been a great one-on-one class to say the least. Uh, I feel like I got my tuition's worth <laughs> for today. Uh, well, Andrea, what what are you up to nowadays? What kind of deals are you working on? Anything that you can share with us? Because we always want the audience to reach out to you if they got something for you or they want to work with you somehow. How can people work with you and what are you looking for right now? So right now we're looking for essentially people that we can help invest in. Like we're looking for somebody who's more boots on the ground for our units that we're acquiring in Ohio and Indianapolis. Uh, so we actually put out an LOI for a 150 plus unit building last week in Indianapolis. And then we also are issuing a um, LOI on a 60 plus unit deal in Columbus, Ohio. And another deal that we're putting an LOI for by the next week for, uh, I think it's like 56 units. So it it's moving along really well. Uh, we we're, Our focus is 30 to 150 units in Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, Dayton, those central areas, along with Indianapolis, Indiana. And it's all value add, anything built past 1960. So we're, we're looking for mostly right now as somebody who can be a really great partner with like boots on the ground to scout uh, these properties and to be able to talk with um, the, the inspection teams along with capital partners. We're always looking for capital partners for our deals, which we're syndicating, usually accredited investors, people who meet that accredited investor um, you know, criteria. But also I just really love talking with people and educating them a little bit more about affordable housing because it is not so scary as long as you take the time to understand the terminology or work with somebody and just do as your do as you go, you know. <laughs> Don't just read terms and try to figure it out yourself. It's good to practice and see how this all can be put into effect. And just keep, you know, keep investing in other people who want to invest in you. I always want to ask people like, how can I be of value to you? Also, Kent, we always ask each other offline, hey, how can I be of value to you? How can I add to your life? Because, you know we're not alone in this, you know, and I'm happy to keep doing these podcasts. We can do more terminology about what's used in terms of like what terminology is used for closing on a deal or increasing rent, developing a property, um, stabilizing the asset, refinancing, maintaining the asset, selling the asset. Like there's so many terms, but it's good to just break it down little by little and see what you're getting yourself into when you do make that jump and invest in affordable housing. Oh, I love that, Andrea, so much because I, I can draw and I can relate to that so well because when I got my, that contract and that deal that sent to me and I was like, all right, I'm going to go replay the episode there with Andrea. So for all of you that are thinking about, oh, this is too much, just feeling overwhelmed, you don't have to feel overwhelmed. The content is there. We Andrea has done the hard work to lay out the terminology for you to help you look out, to give you some pro tips, but also to help you look out for some potential issues. You you just got to go take action now and yes. come back and replay the episode whenever the time is right. You don't have to feel overwhelmed today. You're probably consuming this episode and you're thinking like, wow, that was so much. But somewhere, somewhere along the way, 
the word LiTech is going to roll off your tongue. You're like, oh, I heard about that thing before. Next time you get a LiTech project, you might just come back and replay this episode just to get that basic foundational knowledge. And I think I would just ask folks like, again, when I started this podcast, I didn't have any affordable housing rentals. And it wasn't until I met great people like Andrea that I started to get a little bit smarter day by day. And you just got to keep getting 1% better every single day. And you're going to be so far along in just a year. I never claim to be an expert, but I am so thirsty and so curious about learning as much as possible about this industry. And we are so blessed to be the audience. We're Andrea. She comes out and gives some master classes on all this affordable housing stuff. So Andrea, thank you so much for coming on today. We're going to be back on about, definitely we're going to be back about closing the deals, increasing the rents and all those other different phases, because I think this is going to be so, so valuable audience yeah you guys definitely follow me andrea garcia rei reach out to me on my handles i mean it's the same handle for instagram linkedin facebook it's andrea garcia rei and then just if you want to book a call with me you can just dm me and say hey i want to you know learn more from you and see how i can you know work with you and i'm happy to always have those conversations with people it, it feels good to give back because i really wish like i said i had somebody holding my hand in the beginning but you are thrown in the sharks to just learn it all. And it doesn't have to be that scary. People who are like Kent, who provide this type of value and knowledge of affordable housing are amazing. And I honestly encourage every one of you to join his Facebook group. It is super knowledgeable. It, it You gain so much information from other people who do want to invest in affordable housing, improve the lives of others, get that development money, and just make sure that you're reinvesting that into the tenants. And it provides you with amazing cash flow for your own family. So it's a win-win. That's right. It's a win-win-win for everybody. So if any of you have more comments or questions, leave them in the show notes in the YouTube video down there in the comment section below. Make sure you guys subscribe to the podcast on youtube.com slash at Kent underscore H-E. And I would really appreciate you guys to leave us a review on Spotify or Apple because we can really use a little bit more positivity and spreading good news and good information around the world. So thank you so much again, Andrea, and we will be back with you soon enough.